0: Cambridge Muslim College training the next generation of Muslim thinkers. Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. Alhamdulillah Rabbil Alamin. Wassalatu wassalamu ala akramil anbiya'i wal mursalin sayyidina wa mawlana Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Last year some of you may have uh, been with us on our journey through the complex, always inspiring, always relevant landscape of the Sierra. And at various points on that journey, tracing that uh, incomparably gripping story, we find ourselves confronted with uh, inevitable questions. The question, the story is one of historical record, but uh, an almost inconceivably improbable achievement seems to have been the outcome the happy ending the arabs uh, pagan people became monotheists a tribal people became united people with no interest in life after death became focused on life after death and under one leader so to what do we attribute this well as believers we attribute it first and last to the divine agency and the divine permission. This is what it is to be realising the meaning of being khalifatullah. But we also, because the world has been set up in such a way as to enable us to see what, at least to our weak vision, seem to be factors, causes, consequences, linearity in the mysterious concatenation of forces that constitutes this rather odd material world in which we find ourselves, the mystery of time itself, factors, and factors of success. And we noted at various points that the Holy Prophet, alayhi salatu Was salam, is inspirational not just to those who are interested in divine agency, permission, piety, sanctity, but also in terms of what we generally refer to as charisma, skill, diplomacy, statesmanship, generalship, uh, the qualities um, that the ancient Greeks would regard as uh, specifically the manly virtues. And uh, there have been several in recent years uh, who have taken this story almost as a secular (coughs) model, bracketing out the divine agency and saying, well, this is a real story that happened in space and time, and what, it, what lessons are there for us today to be gleaned from this story of brilliant leadership. John Adair has this book, The Leadership of Muhammad, which a lot of Muslims are enthused by, and there are plenty of others. But what I'm going to suggest in this uh, little series of lectures Uh, is that we need to be uh, a little uncomfortable about importing Mm -hmm. such contemporary categories into our thought world. Sometimes we have to import terminology that is not quite ours. So when we translate Iman, sometimes we say faith. Yes, but not quite. When we translate Nabi, we say prophet? Yes, but not quite. The semantic resonances of the words are subtly different in the two linguistic universes, and we need to beware constantly of reinventing, reconfiguring Islam into a form of thinking and categories that seem to sit naturally with a Western or an Anglo-Saxon linguistic frame. Clearly, we have the responsibility to uh, Think carefully before such a transmutation. And Nabi is not quite a prophet. Similarly, this category of leadership seems to me to be, uh, to some degree, an alien imposition. So I'm going to start with that thought. Is it not the case that in our Enlightenment world, where the divine agency has been sidelined as a matter for sort of a private hobbyists consideration rather than the governing explanation for the human narrative that we like to make man the measure of all things and therefore man as the author of his own destiny becomes glorified, becomes autonomous in a way that for earlier generations of human beings whether monotheistic or polytheistic or pagan would have seemed very strange and improper the glory of man, Mm. humanism, the idea that uh, man through his own innate gifts and capacities can take the horns of destiny and force them onto a new path, the idea of heroism. mentioned a number of times last year uh, the interesting book by the philosopher Carlyle, Heroes and Hero Worship. In this book, he is a leading exponent of Hegel's philosophy of history in high Victorian England, uh, listed certain world historical individuals who, as he saw it, were the incarnation of geist, of spirits, of this ontological cosmic principle that somehow always moved things onwards. You can see how compatible that was with the Darwinian notions that were also breaking surface at the time that, of course, the Victorians did see themselves as obviously the climax of a billion years of evolution. We began with amino acids and we end with the Church of England and the Raj. And this was generally accepted as something self-evident and not in need of uh, interrogation. Carlyle very much part of that world. Social Darwinism, Marxists were uh, in due season to take that perhaps to its logical conclusion. In fact, we could say that many of the key catastrophes of the 20th century were the result of the politicizing of Darwin. Mm -hmm. Communism took itself to be just helping natural selection along a little bit. And the Nazis took themselves to be helping natural selection along a little bit. They collided, but ultimately they were singing from the same Darwinian hymn sheet. Our reception of theories of natural selection is, of course, contested and an ongoing debate. That's not really my point. The point is that in an essentially secular view, which holds that human beings essentially are what they are and achieve things in the world as the result of being simply the latest generation in a mammalian, and ultimately sort of uh, protoplasmic, meaningless, brutal, red in tooth and claw conflict with other life forms, with nothing really meaning anything except the perpetuation of one's genetic material, clearly this idea of leadership becomes essential. And so Carlyle, understanding this very clearly as the new zeitgeist, a post-Christian idea, uh, insists that There are certain world historical individuals who represent this Hegelian ontology of progress towards greater complexity and greater order. Uh, And he identifies them as certain key individuals in human history. And one of them, as we saw, is the holy prophet of Islam, who he sees as a heroic figure, somebody who genuinely brings about a paradigm shift in Uh, the human condition and in perception, simply through force of character. And a lot of Western biographies of the Holy Prophet and Maxime Rodincent's very Marxist uh, biography, which is still widely read, Penguin published it, Uh, tend to see this as the key feature of his career, leadership skills. Mm. Human management skills, diplomacy, statesmanship, careful planning, the calculation of chances. But these, if you actually look at the sirah, seem actually to have been not the considerations that weighed heavily. They were the considerations that mattered for Quraysh and his adversaries, who were the real schemers, those who were plotting and laying stratagems. But throughout the career of the holy prophet of Islam, we find instead the idea that one does one's duty and the rest is up to God. But this idea of leadership seems more like part of the old tribal glorification of certain charismatic individuals than the prophetic model, which is being enunciated in scripture. (coughs) So let's begin with that thought. After all, the Muslim world and the British ummah is awash now with leadership programs of various kinds. Uh, How to create great leaders for the Muslim community and CMC, I suppose, is part of that industry in a certain way. But uh, how exactly does that translate into our own indigenous vocabulary and categories? Perhaps not very well. So one of the things that I want to do in this course of lectures is to look at certain figures who by secular canons could be regarded as leaders, military, political, diplomatic, cultural, spiritual, scholarly. Uh, The ummah has no shortage of great figures to be inspired by. And to see to what extent their success and their esteem in the eyes of the ummah can be attributed to the kind of management speak calculating um, flip chart culture um, that talks about uh, how to be a great CEO or how to be a successful MP or how to get a a good job in the Foreign Office and these (coughs) sort of CV centred criteria for leadership that seem to be prevalent nowadays. Is there some overlap or are we talking about something radically different and if we are then what really are we doing to the logic of our community if we insist on this leadership idea? Not sure. Sometimes it can go to extremes that seem quite absurd, certainly without precedent in our culture. This idea of Muslim achievement awards, for instance, who is voted the best Nasheed artist of 2018. Round of applause and it's like, the X Factor or something and somebody comes on, and the egos are there and everybody cheers and it's great entertainment, who is the great scholar of 2018, round of applause and here's a little badge and the ambassador of somewhere comes along and the MP is photographed next to you. This is increasingly part of our celebrity-oriented culture in Western Islam, which I think is rather strange in the context of a religion where scholars and others have generally preferred not to be in the limelight, and where humility and hayat are almost a watchword of the religion. The hadith says, لِكُلِّ الْخُلُقُ الْإِسْلَامِ Every religion has a particular, specific ethos. And the ethos of Islam is shyness, humility, kind of this is part of the prophetic greatness. And again, last year I tried to point to what seems in secular eyes to be something paradoxical about him and his leadership, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Who could doubt the virility of the way in which he led his people in peace and war? Magnificent. But at the same time, we see, for instance, all of those many hadiths which have him crying, sallallahu alaihi wa That would be an interesting book to put together all the occasions where the holy prophet is moved to tears by the death of a friend, by the death of his son, by joy. He wept frequently, as we don't. He was soft-hearted despite his leadership كان رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم أشد من البكري في خضرها. Again, there's a startling image, but this is what is reported of him in, in many hadiths. The Holy Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم, was more shy, more modest than a virgin in her tent. Sort of bashful. How does that fit with a man who's buckling on his armor on the eve of the Battle of Badr? Uh, and escapes with his closest companion on the hijra and those magnificent leadership moments, that that kind of bashfulness, shyness, uh, won't be found in the contemporary management-speak leadership uh, manuals. We're dealing with something different here that is unfamiliar to those of us whose souls have been formed in the modern world uh, and this has to give us pause if he is saying sallallahu that the ethos of Islam is one of humility, shyness, bashfulness, it sounds almost kind of stereotypically feminine, then where is leadership, where is muruwa, uh, virile manly strength, which is also clearly uh, an aspect of his prophetic perfection. So. Balancing those two, I suggested last time, the prophet who weeps, the prophet who is shy, who lowers his gaze, with the prophet who is the great warrior, diplomat, ambassador, rescuer of his people, preacher, khatib, and so forth, uh, is something that will force us to shift categories a little bit. And what is going on here? Well, what is going on, as I take it, specifically Muhammad and, and specifically Islamic, which is uh, that the way of Islam is to be in the world but not to seek magnificence in the world. Hmm. The Qur'anic stories, which give you a variety of archetypes of the conflict that is in the world and in our souls between Firaun and Musa and Nimrod and Ibrahim and all of those other face-offs between two principles, uh, are emblems uh, told to awaken our innate awareness that the world is a battle and we are the battleground of the principle of the spirit and the ego. There is the magnificence of the Pharaoh with his monster statues that last for 5,000 years because they're made out of such hard granite and his pyramids and the magnificence of that. In the fir'ana, he's up high, physical height, splendor. Seeing him in his court must have been stunning. There is leadership. There's charisma, I guess, Uh, but opposing him and commended in the scripture there is a different magnificence and a different leadership which doesn't really overlap with it at all it has a charisma it's not the charisma of the powerful and if you've lived in the world and moved between worlds and been with the true scholars and also been with politicians and ministers and generals and even heads of state you'll know that they are not the same form of Bani Adam. They both have a charisma, but it's different. And that is evidently important. And how are we going to define it? Personal charisma, it's something intangible. You can feel it even when you close your eyes somehow in the presence of those people. It's like defining beauty or envy or some other powerful elemental human property that has a kind of radioactivity or magnetism within it. Uh, How do you define those things? Who is going to define beauty? Who is going to define any of these? The basic palette of human emotion and charisma is clearly an important part of it and predates civilization and goes back to the earliest periods. Tribal kinship groups, always recognized the, the charisma of the shaman and the charisma of the chief and whoever else happened to have charisma, a warrior, or a hunter. It's part of what we are to detect and to intuit and to revere charisma. And Durkheim and Weber and others have talked a lot about this, even though it's hard to define. But it's clearly part of the human makeup to be in awe of charismatic individuals. But the charismatic individual who is of the mosaic type, the one who has spent his or her life going against the Fir'aun within, uh, becomes a different type of radioactive human being to the type who spent his whole life dismissing the higher possibility and just following Hawa and ego and nafs. It's a different modality of being human. Somehow the processing of the world is just different. They see things differently. Everything is ego. So this is clearly important to the Qur'an. It is giving us these, to use the buzzword, paradigms of leadership, but deconstructing our conventional worldly sense of what it is to be, followed in quite a radical and troubling way. It's saying that the people who are truly to be respected and those whose memories we bless thousands of years later are not uh, the Davos elite of the prehistoric world, but are those who were engaged in the more interesting struggle within. The most ancient human quest which is turning away from... The immediate desire for whatever sensory pleasures might be to hand, uh, allow those uh, yapping monkeys and dogs within to be silenced and start to recenter themselves on the life of the spirit. Every culture has had that. Well, Hadaynahu al Najdain, the Quran says, we've guided you, made both paths, as it were, simple. Uh, And both paths are accessible, and we all know it, whether or not we frame it in in specifically religious terms. Um, But everybody has the sense of rising above their lower immediate appetites, whether or not they're religious, but religionists do it for a reason. So when we look at the Qur'an and its frequent retellings of those titanic, titanic showdowns between the ego man and the spirit man, we find something that applies 100% to today's world. And we find an explanation of why it is that if you leave the presence of the uh, self-denying faithful scholar or the simple fruit seller on the street corner who's really got no ego, but really likes to read Quran, and then you visit Raïs al jumhuriya or Jalalat al-Malik Fulan. It's a different experience, even if they're also praying and fasting and doing the same kind of Muslim things. It's a different kind of leader whose presence you are in. And the presence of those whose habitat is the corridors of power is overwhelmingly a disturbing one. Disorienting, there's a kind of dark energy there, which is palpable to most human beings that generally don't find those places very congenial. You breathe a sigh of relief when you leave, not just because well, this guy could um, have you uh, arrested in an embassy and chopped up into little pieces, but because there is some kind of, sort of negative force there, which can sometimes feel like a curse, uh, the denial of the divine presence, however absurd that human project might be. So. Uh, this is important in our scripture, and it kind of subverts our conventional language about leadership and makes us interrogate very carefully the burgeoning Muslim culture of developing leaders and leadership programs and Muslim Achievement Awards and the 500 greatest Muslims in a particular year and all of those strange league tables. Uh, it's, it's for God to judge who is a great Muslim because, أَكْرَمَكُمْ the noblest of you in his sight is the one who fears him most, and who knows who that is? Yeah. <laughs> who knows who is the best of us today? We have no means of detecting that any more than we have means of detecting who has secret vices, secret virtues, or is keeping these things hidden, uh, and that is part of his mercy, that we are all veiled creatures. So... That's a way of beginning, and what I want to do uh, to get to to drill down into this a little bit more, into this rather disorienting doubt that I'm raising about the virtue of leadership, self-promotion, self-vaunting, smiling in the limelight, is to look at some hadiths. Um, Hadiths that should be quoted Often in our community, you go to community events and you see the sort of Uncle G types, the community leaders, and what they really want is to be photographed with the local MP more than anything else. And they're heads of Islamic something, and they're trustees of this mosque of that mosque, but you can see them kind of almost bursting with pleasure and childish delight when the MP is there, or oh, the great white man and i'm going to have a photograph of him and i can send it to my uncle and the other rival trustee hasn't been photographed it's it's pitiful and it is not respected by anyone it's a kind of groveling and it's because of our denial of this basic uh, prophetic principle so if i could have those books sorry to force you to carry them um yeah so enough of me rabbiting on let's look at some what the Holy Prophet says about this principle of leadership how can it be a problem in Islam when so many of these hero figures in the Quran clearly are leaders of their people and it is through their leadership it seems that their peoples are brought to salvation Noah was a leader Moses a leader and so forth. Sayyidina Muhammad wasalam, led his people what's not to like. Well, this is uh, Sahih al-Bukhari with the uh, famous um, storied commentary of Ibn Hajar al-Asqalani, known as the Fath al-Bari. He's, I guess, a leader of the muhaddithin uh, one of the great figures of uh, late Mamluk egypt which was a period of extraordinary uh, fluorescence in hadith studies in particular and his life is well worth uh, charting interesting life but he produces this uh, what what greater achievement could there be for a muslim than to produce the most respected commentary on the most respected hadith collection so um let's approach this with reverence and here is his way of addressing one of the later books in Sahih al-Bukhari, Kitab al ahkam Book of Rulings or Judgments, and it's the place where you tend to get hadiths that are leadership-related, to be a judge, to be an inspector, to be in authority of some kind. And um, it begins with the idea of not being a leader but obeying leaders. So, بَابُ قَوْلِ اللَّهِ تَعَالَىٰ أَطِيعُوا اللَّهَ وَأَطِيعُوا الْرَسُولَ ulil الْأَمْرِ مِنْكُمْ Allah says, obey Allah, obey the messenger, and those who have authority amongst you. Amr, command, imara to be a commander, to have authority of some kind. Allah is instructing us to obey him his messenger, and those amongst us who have authority. Leadership, well, it's not quite the same category, but this is as near as we're going to get. Um, Modern Arabic words for leader, like za'im, qa'id, and so forth, are post-prophetic. And perhaps that's indicative of how um, the semantics have uh, shifted. Okay. حدثنا عبدان أخبرنا عبد الله عن يونس عن الزهري أخبرني أبو سلمة بن عبد الرحمن أنه سمع أبا هريرة رضي الله عنه يقول إن رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم قال من أطاعني فقد أطاع الله ومن عصاني فقد عصى الله ومن أطاع أميري فقد أطاعني ومن أصى أميري فقد عصاني text of the hadith is the holy prophet says whoever obeys me has obeyed God and whoever disobeys me has disobeyed God whoever obeys my uh, the one who I have appointed to be uh, in authority has obeyed me and whoever has disobeyed the one to whom I have given authority has disobeyed me this is expressed in stark terms. Absolute. Going to need some kind of commentary. Ibn Hajar supplies that. But the basic principle is authority is a big deal in the religion, and it comes through the prophetic example. During his lifetime, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, through practical commands. This army goes here, uh, that tax is used for that purpose. Subsequently it's through Extre- increasingly extended processes and chronological lines of interpretation and ijtihad, but the principle is the same obedience to God, therefore obedience to his prophet, therefore obedience to people in authority. Okay, and then another famous hadith. And Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. ألا كلكم راع وكلكم مسؤول عن رعيته؟ فالإمام الأعظم الذي على الناس راع وهو مسؤول عن رعيته، والرجل راع على أهل بيته وهو مسؤول عن رعيته، والمرأة راعية على أهل بيتي زوجها وولده وهي مسؤولة عنهم. Every one of you is a shepherd. <coughs> Should would have been understood as being a shepherd, specifically. And each one is answerable for his flock, those whom he shepherds. The greatest leader, al-Imam al-A'zam, who is an authority over people, is a shepherd and is answerable for, his, uh, for the state of his flock. A man is the shepherd of his household, and shall be called to account, is answerable for his household. A woman is a shepherd over the people of her husband's house and his children, and she is also answerable for that. So he repeats it Every one of you is a shepherd, every one of you is answerable for his flock. So this is more like a kind of warning and a statement of fact then a glorification of being a leader uh, you'll be called to account just like the shepherd who is neglectful goes to sleep um, or in Morocco they smoke hashish sometimes and uh, the sheep disappears and who knows if you're not doing your job as a shepherd <laughs> you can be taken to task for uh, uh, the sheep that disappears or that falls down a hole or whatever it is. The shepherd requires mindfulness, we'd say, nowadays. So you have to be mindful. So the fact of authority is there. There have to be rulers. There have to be families. There have to be structures in society. There has to be somebody who is in charge of these structures. But this hadith is saying, watch out. It's not saying this is a glorious thing. That's the pharaonic model. Pharaoh is not our interested in being called to account for the state of the population of egypt Uh, he's interested in his own magnificence Uh, but this hadith is telling us something quite different so it begins with this which is already a healthy and a sobering thought it seems to me and then i'm going to fast forward through uh, this Interesting chapter. And with these commentaries, as you can imagine, a lot of it is highly technical stuff about arguments over isnads and grammatical stuff, and we certainly aren't going to look at that. But let's look at the next hadith. Hmm. قال رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ لَا حَسَدَ إِلَّا رَجْلٌ آتَاهُ اللَّهُ مَالًا فَصَلَّتَهُ عَلَىٰ أَلَكَتِهِ فِي الْحَقِّ وَآخَرُ آتَاهُ اللَّهُ حِكْمَةً فَهُوَ يَقْضِي بِهَا وَيُعَلِّمُهَا Only two people should be envied. A man whom God has given wealth and he uses it almost to its depletion in right causes, and another whom God has given wisdom, in accordance with which he judges and teaches. Mm. Envy is a vice except. It's permissible to envy a billionaire who's giving away all of his money, because his... The Holy Prophet says of such a person, he's praying and fasting, inshallah, but he's also doing these other things, and then also this idea of wisdom. Somebody wise, you can envy that person. And the commentary goes on to explain that this has a lot to do with wisdom in disposing of uh, the affairs of those for whom one is responsible, this ra'aya, this flock. Mm. If you have wisdom... Uh, in dealing with people and in giving judgment over them, it's permissible for people to envy you. Mm. So that, again, puts you up there. Somebody in a position of authority can be legitimately um, envied. Um, Let's move on a bit because there's a... And then, Bab... مَنْ لَمْ يَسْأَلِ الْإِمَارَةَ أَعَانَهُ اللَّهُ عليها. A chapter uh, on the fact that he who does not ask for authority will be given help in exercising that authority by Allah. Right, so this is exactly the heart of what we were talking about with this apparent prophetic paradox. Of the humility and the magnificence of his leadership, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. An Abdurrahman Ibn Samurata call, call a lin Nabiyu, Sallallahu Alaihi sallam. Ya Abdurrahman, Let us a little imara. For in a care in or tea to her on mas alatin, or kilter elea, or who kilter elea, in or tea to her on ray alatin, or alayha. وَإِذَا حَلَفْتَ عَلَى يَمِينٍ فَرَأَيْتَ غَيْرَهَا خَيْرًا مِنْهَا فَكَفِّرْ عَنْ يَمِينِكَ وَأْتِ الَّذِي هُوَ خير. So, here is a hadith that immediately seems to challenge the leadership industry. abraham bin Samura, his uh, a convert who goes on to actually become a governor in Iran after the conquest. So he's somebody who is in authority, is a leader. Mm -hmm. O Abdurrahman, the Holy Prophet says, do not seek authority, do not seek leadership, because if you are given it having asked for it, it will be given authority over you. But if you're given it without asking for it, you will be helped in it. And then the hadith goes on, and if you swear, uh, you take an oath to something, and then you see something else is better than it, then you can uh, pay uh, an atonement for breaking your oath and then do the thing that is, is better, um, which is another issue, but uh, it's mentioned in this hadith. So the commentary then, uh, trying to filter out some of the grammatical interest. Okay. مَنْ إِلَى نَفْسِهِ halak. Whoever is entrusted to his own self will be destroyed. وَمِنْهُ فِي وَلَا تَكِلْنِي إِلَى So this word is used in the famous prayer where we say, do not make me rely upon myself, do not make my own self um, my reliance. wakala أَمْرَهُ إِلَى فُلَانٍ صَرَفَهُ ila. So in Arabic, you say when you make this use this verb uh, and you uh, hand over to something, something to someone, then you're giving it over to him. Wa al hadith al imara alayha min So the meaning of the hadith is that whoever seeks authority and is given it is not helped or is not to be helped in it because of his zeal, because of his ambition, we probably say. So we gain from this the fact that to seek anything relating to authority is disliked, makrooh. فَيَدْخُلُ فِي الْإِمَارَةَ الْقَضَاءُ والحسبة وَنَحْوَ ذَلِكُ and included in authority here is things like being a judge, or being a kind of magistrate or policeman and things like that. and that whoever is zealous for such positions uh, is not to be helped or will not be helped. So that seems to be the, the basic sense of the hadith, and again, it's really pulling the rug from underneath our sense of leadership and here is my CV, I'm going to apply for this job because I want to have some kind of authority over people. But if you're given the authority without asking for it, without this hers, without this ambitiousness, God will help you. So where does that leave us hmm, in our contemporary situation? Because after all, applying for a job nowadays or competing for a ministerial portfolio, in Whitehall. uh, It's all about self-promotion, isn't it? You hire a PR firm to tell everybody about your achievements. You kind of strut your stuff and you boast and you talk on news nights and you veil your faults and you play uh, to the gallery and tell everybody how wonderful you are because you really want that job. You want to be health minister or you want to be CEO of Glaxo or something and you're ambitious for that. You have this hirs. Now, the Holy Prophet is telling us in this Bukhari Hadith that if you do that and you have that <laughs> strong ambitiousness, you're not going to be helped in it, but yourself will be your aid. In other words, there won't be divine assistance. You're just relying on your own capacities. It seems quite clear. But then, of course, uh, as has to be done, the commentary points out that there seems to be a conflict with some other text. ويعارضه في الظاهر ما أخرجه أبو dawood عن أبي هريرة رفعه من طلب قضاء المسلمين حتى يناله ثم غلب عدله جوره فله الجنة ومن غلب جوره عدله فله النار. so he says apparently this is contradicted by another hadith narrated by Abu, hadith, uh, Abu dawood from Abu Huraira, where the holy prophet says whoever seeks uh, a judgeship over the Muslims and gets the job and then his justice prevails over his injustice, he shall go to paradise. But whoever's injustice uh, uh, predominates over his justice shall go to hell. There's another hadith where it seems that if you really seek a a judgeship uh, and you do it well, you go to heaven. So how do we balance these two hadiths, both about leadership? Well, جَمَعَ بَيْنَهُمَا، and the one who yields them from كَوْنِهِ لا يُعَانُ بِسَبَبِ طَلَبِهِ أَلَّا يَحْصُلَ مِنْهُ الْعَدْلِ إِذَا وُلِيٍّ And the way of reconciling the two is that uh, the fact that he is not to be helped because of his seeking the job doesn't mean that when he does get the job, um, he's not capable of being just. talabu Or it may be that in the first case, the, uh, the hadith is referring to uh, intending, and in the second case, it's referring to actually when you are in authority and you get the job. Uh, وَقَدْ تَقَدَّمَ مِنْ حَدِيثِ أَبِي مُوسَىٰ إننا لَا نولي مَنْ حرص. And we've commented earlier on the hadith, he says, in some previous volume, of course people who use these books would know exactly which page to turn to, and nowadays we have to spend hours looking for it. But uh, there's another hadith which is already commented on, uh, in which the Holy Prophet says, I do not give authority to somebody who wants it. Okay. So, yeah, uh, and then there's another hadith. In the comes a Sona Alan Imara, was a Tacuno Nadamatan Yomel Kiama, for Niamel Mordia. Wabit Satil Fatima Interesting Hadith. The Holy Prophet here is offering a prediction. You shall certainly be keen to have authority, and it will be a source of regret on the day of judgment. So blessed be the suckling and uh, wretched be the weaned That's an odd expression. And uh, the commentary goes on to explain the meaning of this, which is that uh, the suckling is the fortunate one who's enjoying this position uh, when he's still attached in this world, uh, but in the next world, when he's detached from those comforts, um, he will find himself in a state of regret and uh, misfortune. Yep. And then he goes on to talk about uh, the, the vanity and the instability of positions of authority. Um, قال Al الحرص على الولاية هو السبب في اقتتال الناس عليها حتى سفكت الدماء وَاسْطُبِيحَةِ الْأَمْوَالِ وَالْفُرُوضِ الْفَسَادُ فِي الْأَرْضِ بِذَلِكَ one scholar says, uh, ambition for power is the reason why people fight for it, so that blood is shed and uh, properties are ransacked and there is rape and widespread corruption in the earth. Um, So uh, there's more here, but I think we get the general idea quite strongly, which is that ambitiousness for leadership is regarded prophetically as a very big problem uh, and that God will not give you success if because of your ambition for something uh, you get it. Uh, which is one reason why we find the scholars historically, and the imam talks about the Akabir generally refusing positions of uh, authority because of the fitna that it brings. The believer wants to pray, to fast, to be right with God, uh, to bring up his family, but all of this sort of pharaonic glory of having something splendid to boast about on your business card is not the Islamic way. That doesn't mean that there aren't to be leaders, but the leaders ideally are there without having zealously sought out out that position. And that's the difference. So the Anbiya didn't want to be prophets, didn't ask to be prophets, they didn't fill out the job application. It was Allah Subh'anaHu Wa (coughs) ta'ala. speaks to Musa uh, from um, the depths of the, the desert. Inni illa ana speaks to him from that fire in the desert. I, only I, am God. There is no God other than me. So worship me and establish the prayer for my recollection. Hmm? And then he's told to go to the Fir'aun with his brother and all of those commandments, but throughout the discourse, Sayyidina Musa, salam, is kind of not very keen on all of this. Uh, the ego's not there. Um, the danger is manifest. And who wants to go to the palace of Fir'aun? After all, there's no khair there, only danger, and the danger of the ego and being caught up in that dark psychic turbulence is far greater than any danger to life or limb. Because the spirit itself and its welfare is at stake. So in our civilization, very often we find that the truly prophetic individuals are those who are in their positions without really having wanted them at all. Uh, and in again and again in the biographies of the scholars, you find their reluctance to teach, for instance. Their reluctance to give ISNADs unless their teachers and their students absolutely insist. Their reluctance to write sometimes unless their teachers and their students absolutely insist. They're kind of, they don't want to appear in the limelight. And the danger of being uh, uh, top notch big-shot scholar is exampled in the life of Imam Ghazali rahmatullahi alayh who suffers his crisis precisely because as he says in his autobiography he seems to be enjoying this kind of leadership position and maybe uh, he's enjoying being a suckling in this world and in the next world he's going to be weaned and um, is going to be out of luck and that prompts that famous crisis so we find uh rulership is generally something that the ulama and the pious do not aspire to you leave it to the mamluks or whoever is there but you have to remain independent and the scholar has the right to criticize them on behalf of the that's one of the obligations of the scholar and he may find that mosaically he risks life and limb in order to say that truth Mm. Jihad, Jihad, we we hear, but the best Jihad, the Holy Prophet says, is to speak the truth in the presence of uh, an unjust, tyrannical ruler. So one of the things we're going to be looking at in these lectures is the independence of the people of religion, the faith leaders of Islam, from political authority. Musa cannot be the wazir al-Awqaf. Fir'aun cannot co-opt him, and Musa will not allow himself to be co-opted. And this is one of the, the harshnesses of the scholar's vocation, that the people love the scholars and are doubtful about the rulers, and they are looking to the scholars for guidance, to be in that mosaic place. And nowadays, across the Ummah, we find the nationalization of the ulama, the co-opting of the people who should be warathatul anbiya, the heirs of the prophets. And sometimes excruciating pressures are brought to bear on them. If you look at the WikiLeaks website, there's a big download of royal Saudi emails. Uh, very depressing, not least the fact that they really don't know the basis of Arabic grammar. It's shocking. But uh, one of them is boasting to another prince, we can get our ulama to say whatever we want them to say. That's the reality of much of the ummah today. Uh, And this is profoundly subversive and is not our idea of leadership. You continue to speak the truth, even if you are strapped down on the guillotine. And then you'll be loved until the yom al And this is a hard thing for the scholars to bear. So many of them are now behind bars. But then sometimes, realistically, to conserve what's left, maybe you have to go along with it. What are we to make of the muftis of the Russian Federation under communism? They tried to keep a tiny little spark alive in the almost extinguished candle of Islamic scholarship. (coughs) The madrasas closed, the olamat sent to Siberia, Uh, everything smashed by a militant state atheism and these kind of figureheads, the so-called red muftis. Well, I knew one or two of them when I was a student. They were both studying with me at a, a bit of the Azhar, And there were two of them from Russia. And the rumor was they were both KGB men sent to spy on each other. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, I found them to be decent. And their understanding, although there was little that they could say, was that if they don't do this thing and become the Mufti of Tashkent and, and receive a salary from an atheist state, there'll be nothing there at all. And the thing will be dead. So... Sometimes they are in that excruciating, difficult position. But still, historically, the role of the ulama is to be chary of engaging with the Salatin. The best of sultans is he who visits the scholars, and the worst of scholars is he who visits the sultans. Mm. Uh, and this is really absolutely relevant to us today. Even in the West, Governments are really trying to get a handle on Muslim communities and developing Muslim leadership skills and even paying money, even counter-radicalisation money to various charities and quangos and odd shadowy agencies that have suddenly popped up and are throwing money around to try and develop Muslim leadership skills. We need to uh, sup with them with a long spoon, I think not because we don't also want to destroy radicalism, we because it's more of a threat to our religion, really, than it is a threat to their sovereignty, uh, but just for the integrity and the honor of the tradition of the ulama, which is not to be co-opted by anyone. So that's, again, something that is, we're going to be looking at in these uh, various episodes. I want to say something just. Uh, to conclude today about one particular instance of this. Uh, and uh, this is one that is important for CMC because CMC is has a memorandum with the Islamic University of Moscow. And we have hosted the Deputy Mufti of Moscow, the Deputy Mufti of Siberia, and the Muslim ulama of the Russian Federation which is an important place because 40% of Muslims in Europe live in Russia. Big community. We went to Jumar prayers, the CMC delegation at a mosque in Moscow where 160,000 people pray the Eid just at that one mosque and there's other mosques in Moscow and it's a big, big, vibrant, important community. But their relationship with the government, and we talked to the head of the Islamic University in Moscow and his predecessor six years earlier had been shot dead in his office and it's an unstable kind of place and nobody's quite sure who is who. They are in a much more difficult situation than we are here, but they are asking these questions and the Muslims of Russia are looking to the scholars for leadership and not being co-opted. But that's part of a long story and I want to go through some of that story, partly because it's really interesting and dramatic, Um, just as the kind of first of these little vignettes. So um, perhaps these could be passed around. These are my handouts. I'm sure that you don't want to observe me struggling with PowerPoint, which has comedic value, but it's not really good. Educational practice. So I'm doing it the old style with handouts. Now, uh, I'm going to lead up to an example, a champion of Muslim leadership of the 19th century, who is Imam Shamil of the Caucasus, who many of you will have heard about, who is worth dwelling upon uh, because of his being kind of on the cusp of modernity. He's not from some Mamluk back when, he's dealing with the reality of uh, European conquest, the European determination to institutionalize religion and to co-opt it, and dealing with uh, a situation of genocide. So he's from Dagestan, the Caucasus. If you go to the main madrasa in Khasavyurt in Dagestan, 20 lecture rooms. Each one is named after an alim of Daristan who's been assassinated in the last 20 years. And that's how touchy things are because of the so-called Salafi jihadis who don't like the traditional Shafi scholars. It's um, a kind of precarious place, but it's a very ancient Muslim place. Darabant in the south was called by the Arabs Bab al and it is uh, an ancient city, a UNESCO heritage site. Sahaba buried there, really beautiful. If you think about the early Muslim conquests, everybody spread out like waves of a sort of storm in every direction. And they were only stopped by the Atlantic in one direction and the Chinese in another. And to the north, really, by the Byzantines and then by the Caucasus. Caucasus is formidable. Uh, the highest mountains in Europe. Mount Elbrus is the highest mountain in Europe. Not Mont Blanc. Mount Elbrus is 1,000 meters higher than Mont Blanc. Enormous phalanxes of sheer cliffs. You can go to some of the Muslim villages in the Caucasus, which are built kind of on the edge of this incredible abyss. And you look down from somebody's roof or from the wall next to the mosque, and you can see below you, there are clouds, because it's so far down. And apparently sometimes you can see thunderstorms from above. It's a really extraordinary place. And so, because it's so remote, so hard to get around in those mountains, that uh, it's very divided ethnically. Ancient Arab historians called it Jebel al-Lughat, because there's so many different languages. So if you look at this uh, little map, ethnic plurality, <laughs> Most of you probably haven't heard of any of those languages except perhaps Russian and Georgian. But this is just the surface of it because there's other languages as well. So really inaccessible, impossible to conquer, uh, and the Sahaba didn't get beyond it. Some of them went around to the east along the Caspian. But then, according to the historians, they came to a, a great plain, a desert, full of dangerous snakes. And then there's something called the Putrid Sea, where you can't get any fresh water, and they didn't go further north. So this was the furthest limit of the Dar al-Islam. And there's still substantial Christian communities there. Armenia and Georgia are Caucasian people that are still Christian after all of this time. They're still pagans there after all of this time. A lot of the Ossetians, um, you might have heard of South Ossetia in the news, are pagans to this day, really remote. Out of the way places, so Islam spreads slowly in these mountains, uh, and it spreads from uh, the south. Um, the uh, Dagestan is basically Shefeis and the Chechens as well. Uh, Chechnya converts in the 15th and 16th century. Ingushetia, which is also Chechen, <laughs> which is one of the Muslim republics there, um, <coughs> converted only in the 19th century. Uh, And then to the uh, west of the Caucasus, around the Black Sea, uh, people tend to be Hanafis because the influence comes up from the kind of Turkic-speaking world. Uh, And that includes one of the lost nations of the Ummah, the Circassians, some of my favourite people, Cherkess. There's a map of Circassia 150 years ago. There were maps of Circassia and people went there and it had a population of about 3 million. And it was... Uh, If you consider the map of the Black Sea, it's kind of the top right-hand corner. Sochi, its main city, we heard of the Sochi Olympics. The main stadium was built on the site of a mass grave where the Russians buried many of the former Muslim inhabitants. Um, Julian Shenfield says that uh, it was the biggest single genocide of the 19th century. Uh, the catastrophe of the loss of Circassia, which was a big trauma across the Muslim world, where 1.5 million were simply massacred, men, women, and children, and uh, the survivors were dispelled. So, yes, here's a nice quote. In 1829, Russia gets Circassia from Turkey. And then you have the Circassian genocide, 1864 to 1867. 90% of the Circassian people die. So a Russian prince uh, who is in charge of this says to a group of visiting Americans, these Circassians are just like your American Indians, as untamable and uncivilized, and owing to their natural energy of character, extermination only will keep them quiet. In 1861, towards the end, Tsar Alexander II says, now with God's help, the matter of complete conquest of the Caucasus is near to conclusion. A few years of persistent efforts are remaining to utterly force out the hostile mountaineers from the fertile countries they occupy and settle on the lands of Russian Christian population forever. This was part of the story of Russian expansion. And Russian national identity, and this again is a, a headache for Muslims living in Russia, Muslims maybe 20% of the Russian federal population, significant is that the russian national story is constituted by the expansion of the country against to some extent prussians and poles lithuanians to the west but mainly muslims to the south and east and this begins with ivan the terrible 1552 he yeah, was kind of like henry the only worse he had six wives I'll just read about what happened to them and once Um, He had an argument with his pregnant daughter because she was wearing something he didn't like and so he beat her up and she miscarried and then the daughter's husband objected and so um, Ivan the Terrible killed him and killed all his children and a kind of unhappy sort of person. But he is the one who really begins this crusade towards the east and he captures the great Muslim city of Kazan in 1552 and Muslim population is either killed or forcibly baptised. 300 years, they're not allowed to pray the Muslim way. And then Catherine the Great re-legalizes Islam, and the Muslims pop up again saying, oh, I'm not going to go to church any longer. Fool you. And they start building mosques. And it's now um, a mainly Muslim town, capital of Tatarstan, which is interesting because Tatarstan is the most prosperous of all of the republics of the Russian Federation, and it's a Muslim republic. Uh, Anyway, Kazan is a great story, but it's not today's story. And then Ivan the Terrible goes south and takes Astrakhan, formerly known as Haji Tar Khan, Muslim city which is where the Volga River hits the Caspian Sea. And then uh, he goes east and the Muslim Khanate of Sibir, today Siberia, which is thinly populated but Muslim land, also submits and that's really the end of the large Muslim preponderance in the central and eastern russian steps but the process continues and uh, (coughs) the russians continue to expand uh, partly through the cossacks through these kind of border mounted mercenaries semi-independent sometimes suppressed sometimes encouraged who the russians tend to put on the frontiers policy of russian expansion is to establish garrison stations stanitsa uh, governed by these wild um, very orthodox kind of crusading Cossacks. And an amnesty is granted to criminals and exiles and other ne'er-do-wells if they want to settle those lands um, which were removed from the previous Muslim population. So that's how Russia, from a fairly small thing, starts to become now, still, after the cessation of the independent states in 1991, the world's biggest country, largely because of expansion against uh, muslim neighbors so the circassians really get it in the neck which is you know, if you ever meet circassians and there's circassian websites because the 10 that that escaped still exist mainly in turkey but the ottomans settled them uh into the circassian villages in kosovo for instance the royal guard of the jordanian royal family is made up of circassians so the, the guy who taught my son yusuf to shoot a uh, circassian uh, Europeans, European-looking people. And there's Circassian Cerkas, people. Women are famously beautiful. <coughs> so much of the blood of the Ottoman royal house is actually uh, Circassian. <coughs> so Pertefnial Valle de Sultan in the 19th century was the wife of Sultan Abdul-Majid and therefore the mother of Sultan Abdulaziz. And the Ottomans often imported Circassian women because of their beauty famously beautiful even the Italians Cosimo di Medici the great sort of Medici Baron of Renaissance Florence had an illegitimate child by a Sergassian woman Pertetnia because these Ottoman women were really powerful um, went on to found hospitals and she has say the Valle de Sultan mosque in Aksaray Istanbul is, is by her and you know she was powerful I was reading Ottoman history book recently, and her son Abdulaziz had been traveling in Europe and was stopping at the Ottoman town of Rushchuk, which is now in Bulgaria. He intended to spend a month there. He got a letter from his mother saying, Come back. And of course, the Sultan, the Amir al mumin immediately went back. Uh, the, the wives of the Sultans were often not powerful, but the mothers were incredibly powerful. Another one, Tiri Mujgan Khadun Effendi, um, who was the mother of Sultan Abdul Hamid. Um, also Circassian. Um, so you could say that the blood of the Ottoman royal house was actually European, Caucasian, Bosnian, uh, some French, um, Venetian. Um, they weren't Turkish. Interesting. Europe called it Turkey, but they weren't actually Turkish. But in any case, Circassia um, now you won't find on the map. Sochi and those places, solidly Russian. And a few of the smaller peoples, um, the Kabardians and others, kind of consider themselves to be Circassians, but they have vanished. So the fear of the other Muslims in the Caucasus, who had always been fighting each other, was the same is going to happen to us. Chechnya, Dagestan, Ingushetia, Abkhazia, all of these other Muslim peoples. And so the only way of resisting the Russians was somehow to unite. Not easy, because um, they are mountain people, like a lot of mountain people in the Balkans, Lebanon, elsewhere, Uh, they have a culture of vendetta, (coughs) karnlou. So if you steal a chicken from the next village, they come and sort you out, and it becomes a deal that can go on for generations. Uh, And uh, the prevailing law was called the adat. Even though they respected the sharia, but the adat was kind of customary law, uh, was in many cases something that cemented the sort of Jahili divisions of the Caucasian people. So it was clearly a matter of survival for these people faced with the extreme brutality of the Cossacks and the invading forces, people really facing liquidation, genocide. 200,000 people died in the Bosnian ethnic cleansing, but... 1.5 million in Circassia. that was a very serious operation. So they had to unite. So we have the great figure of Imam Shamil, Naqshbandi chieftain, who was an Avar, A-V-A-R, not a Dagestani, not a Chechen. He was from one of the smaller nationalities, who became one of the best known Muslim leaders or heroes of the 19th century. One of the interesting, fun places to read about him, and this is, of course, like so many other good books, in the CMC library, Leslie Blanche, The Sabres of Paradise. Hmm. She's an interesting kind of woman. She died quite recently. She was over 100. kind of traditional aristocratic, storytelling, Orient-loving woman, who wore Turkish clothes and had a villa in in the south of France, made quite a lot of money out of her books. And she was a sort of superior Mills and Boone type writer. Sort of European women who went out and found love in the arms of sort of um, hunky Oriental men. Uh, the Wilder Shores of Love is her best-known book, which is people like Jane Digby and others who went out and married uh, usually Arab Muslim men. Uh, it's a kind of theme in sort of European romantic writing. Um, pierre Loti would be another example of that kind of author but this book is actually more serious because she actually met people from imam shamil's family including his great-granddaughter in istanbul she met some of the georgian royals and she put together this account and the family still live in medina because imam shamil died and was buried in medina he used to have a nice or uh, tomb there Uh, so it's kind of since he dies at the end of the 19th century almost living memory even though he's from somebody somewhere that seems to be so strange and so distant, so her book is uh, actually quite gripping and quite worth the read. So, after the conquest of Circassia which has really traumatized the whole Muslim world. The Khalifa wants to send forces, but he doesn't necessarily want, even though he's won the Crimean War, another struggle against the Russians. The Russians have a million men under arms in southern Russia following the Crimean War. So they're pushing further into the Caucasus and it becomes this legendary scene of battles, Lermontov and Turgenev and um, Tolstoy. Tolstoy's famous novel, Haji Murad, is set in the Caucasian Wars. It becomes (coughs) as important for the Russian imagination as the Wild West is for Americans, except a little bit more literate and perhaps a little bit more more disciplined. Um, So the first coherent response comes from a very shadowy, still not properly researched uh, individual. You might think, well, there aren't records here, but actually the libraries of um, Dagestan in particular are absolutely packed. These were highly literate scholarly communities um, who conversed with each other and wrote their books in Arabic, um, even though they were not ethnically Arabs. And there's a lot of histories. Said who wrote a book on the history of the tariqas in the Caucasus, who was assassinated five years ago, he was one of the sheikhs of the Tariqas, a really old man who wrote a really good book in Russian about um, the, the spiritual history of the region. Um, these are uh, literate people and the sources do exist. But the beginning of the jihad comes at the hands of a very strange uh, individual known as Sheikh Mansour or Elisha Mansour. And there's lots of stories about him. Uh, one of them is that he was actually an Italian Jesuit priest who had been sent to convert the Caucasians to Catholicism but ends up converting to Islam and takes up arms against the the, uh, the Russians uh, with an authorization from the uh, Ottoman Khalifa and he's known to have fallen at a battle at a place called Tatar-Tub in the Caucasus in 1791. Um, uh, he... Uh, uh, demonstrated the potential military power of the Caucasians. The peoples to the north, the Black Sea once was an entirely Muslim lake and there were no significant Christian settlements on the Black Sea. Um, Crimea was a semi-independent Muslim Khanate under the Girai family and Kiran was a, a great, powerful Muslim country that traded with the rest of the world and we should all visit... Crimea. It's amazingly beautiful, and to see the Great Mosque and Bakhchisarai Sarai and the Khan's Palace, it's like kind of the east of Europe's Granada, as it were. Very uh, evocative. Uh, so, the, the Catherine the Great, at the end of the 18th century, starts to push down towards the Black Sea, and uh, she takes Crimea, and the mosques are pulled down, and the population either dispelled or reduced to Uh, serf status, basically like being agricultural slave, and the girais are removed. And then the Nogai steppe, which is Muslim nomadic territory around what is now Edessa and down towards Circassia, is progressively ethnically cleansed and settled by Cossacks in this traditional fashion. And uh, these people don't put up much of a resistance. The Nogais kind of nomadic pastoralists can't do much against. A million Russian bayonets and they submit. There's still a few nogais around. Uh, But the Caucasians, these mountaineers, are a different matter. These are people who are incredibly physically tough, who live on almost nothing, a bit of dried meat and porridge that sustains you forever. It's said that uh, in the 19th century, a Chechen woman would never marry a man unless he had killed at least one Russian hmm, and jumped over a river at least 15 feet wide and also jumped over a rope held at shoulder height between two of his friends. And if he hadn't done these things, of course, she wasn't going to give him the time of day. (laughs) (laughs) These are real warriors. And because they lived in these mountains, always walking up and down, tremendously physically strong. Uh, uh, Physically strong, tough, and turned out to be something of a match for the enormous Russian legions. These are uh, some of the world's great warriors. They fought like lions. And th- the leaders of this resistance were with the Naqshbandi sheikhs. Nakshbandis are uh, often associated with uh, pro-sharia militancy in Islamic history, uh, certainly in the Caucasus. Uh, the, the Caucasians are basically nowadays either Nakshbandis or Qadris. Uh, and both of them have a tradition of uh, militancy. Uh, 1827, uh, a kind of capital is established by somebody called Razi Mullah, who is a Naqshbandi murid in the town of Rimri, which is on top of this impossibly steep needle-like mountain, and it's um, difficult even to get a mule up there. But this becomes, for three decades, uh, the capital of uh, the independent (coughs) Muslim state of the Caucasus. His preaching in Naqshbandi Lines is about uh, 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 self-improvement and also about replacing the adat and these laws of vendetta with the sharia. Sharia doesn't recognize this kind of tit-for-tat killing, but instead insists that you deal with an injustice by going to the Qadi, who imposes a penalty, and a line is drawn under the dispute. So much of the battle in Caucasus is about replacing old ideas of vendetta and honor with uh, sharia values. And to this day in the region, they call this the time of sharia in the Caucasus. There is the problem of alcohol consumption. In the center of the villages, there are these big earthenware jars full of alcohol. (laughs) and this has to be dealt with. Uh, And Imam Shamil, when he comes along, uh, issues a ruling that anybody who claims to be Muslim who has ever consumed alcohol has to be flogged. And then somebody points out, well, you have also, in your own youth, are known to have tasted wine. And he says, yes, and I will be the first to enact this law. So he has his brother, who's also drunk, to flog him publicly, even though he's the ruler, the leader in front of everybody. And then he flogs his brother. That's the kind of toughness of these people. And that imposition of the rules on oneself so that one is also part of the populace that are subject to one's leadership is one reason why he manages to inspire people so much. (coughs) The fact that he is living with their life and lives uh, an extremely simple style of life. So uh, you have Razi Mullah starting to try and take territory back from uh, the Russians, and then the Russians besiege Rimri. Uh, Uh, And Mullah is there and is leading Mureed, Shamil is there with their naibs, who are the kind of khalifas of the tariqah. And they decide that they're not going to leave, but they're going to make a stand. The Russians besiege it. And according to the Russians, when they finally take the town, they find uh, Mullah there, um, (coughs) still seated on his prayer carpet. And he's still in the prayer position, but he's actually dead, having been killed um, with his hand on his beard. But uh, Shamil is still fighting with 60 of the Naibs, uh, great sharpshooters, the Chechens, um, shooting from uh, a bastion. Uh, And then famous incident, uh, inspirational, really, and this got even into the English press, uh, when there's only two men alive uh, out of the entire garrison. This is what a Russian officer says describing the incident. It was dark. By the light of the burning thatch, we saw a man standing in the doorway of the house, which stood on raised ground rather above us. This man, who was very tall and powerfully built, stood quite still, as if giving us time to take aim. Then suddenly, with the spring of a wild beast, he leapt clean over the heads of the very line of soldiers about to fire on him. And landing behind them, whirling his sword in his left hand, he cut down three of them. but was bayoneted by the fourth, the steel plunging deep into his chest. His face still extraordinary in its immobility, he seized the bayonet, pulled it out of his own flesh, cut down the man, and with another superhuman leap, cleared the wall and vanished into the darkness. We were left absolutely dumbfounded. This is a a famous moment in Russian imperial history, really, the idea of the Russian troops with their bayonets surrounding Imam Shamil And he cuts down three of them and jumps over their heads and disappears uh, and lives to fight another 30 years um, in this extraordinary uh, campaign. And of course, events like that secure him uh, the loyalty of so many others. He escapes from Rimbury. He's badly wounded. He goes up even higher in the mountain to the side of a glacier to a little stone hut um, where a shepherd sends word to his wife, Fatima, who comes to him with food, nurses him through a fever. By this time, he's already got 18 bayonet and sword wounds on his body. And uh, he's then, when he recovers, appointed by the Muslims of all of the Caucasus to be the Imam al-A'azam, the leader of the struggle. So we find, and we don't really have time to trace all of the details of this, uh, even though the Russians lose half a million men in their attempts to subdue um, Imam Shamil and his campaign, uh, a master of guerrilla warfare. Uh, And it's said that the Russians only succeed eventually just by cutting down all of the forests. Chechnya and Dagestan are covered by a huge, beautiful, deciduous um, oak woods uh, where the, uh, the, the Murids would hide themselves. And so the Russians decided just to, rather like the Americans with Agent Orange in Vietnam, you just uh, plaster the landscape with defoliant and there's nowhere for the Viet Cong to hide. The Russians do the same kind of thing. So it said eventually uh, Chechnya and Dagestan were conquered by the axe rather than the musket. But um, still, he, his exploits become uh, legendary. Uh, the Russians attack another Chechen village, Ashilta. Um, Two thousand of Shama's murids take an oath to defend it to the death, <laughs> hand-to-hand fight through the streets, and the Russians, Russians capture the town and massacre everybody, men, women, and children. Incidentally, very often women in the, the Chechen and Dagestani uh, tradition are fighting, uh, and even the children, on one of the famous sieges. Um, of Acholgo, I think it is uh, that the women and children are hiding in a cave, and the Russians are taking the, the the main village. And then the women and children burst out of the cave, and even the children with knives are kind of jabbing up at the Russian soldiers. They're really formidable, uh, formidable opponents. So uh, Shamil continues to the great humiliation of the Tsar, sort of three months ride away in St. Petersburg uh, to um, to prevail. And he develops also a scholarly tradition. We have writings from him. He has his own avkar, which is called the zabor of Shamil, which is a kind of development of the Noxbandi Khatmal Khajagan tradition. Um, uh, yeah dramatic dramatic stories um of the the final capture but what i what i yeah. another account from a russian officer uh on the attack on akhulgo which is shamil's new uh capital uh and uh the Russians have just betrayed Imam Shamil because they're besieging the town and they say, if you give us your son, Jamal ad-Din, as a hostage, um, we'll leave you in peace and we'll raise the siege. Shamil, saying that the town is about to be annihilated, reluctantly agrees, and Jamal ad-Din goes off. And as soon as the Russians have their hands on him, they start the bombardment again. And it's clear that it's just been a ruse. And Shamil, his The hatred of the Russians is partly due to the the kind of treasonous uh, behavior he's been duped. So the Russians advance again, uh, and uh, this is the account of a Russian officer. We had to lower soldiers by means of ropes. Our troops are almost overcome by the stench of the numberless corpses. In the chasm between the two villages, the guard had to be changed every few hours. More than a thousand bodies were counted. Large numbers were swept downstream or lay bloated on the rocks. Nine hundred prisoners were taken alive, mostly women, children and old men. But in spite of their wounds and exhaustion, even these did not surrender easily. Some gathered up their last force and snatched the bayonets from their guards. The weeping and wailing of the few children left alive and the sufferings of the wounded and dying completed the tragic scene. Shamel has escaped with his family um, he has his uh, two wives, Fatima and Jauhara, uh, with him. Uh, Johara uh, falls prey to a Russian bullet, a sniper, uh, even though she's pregnant, falls into the river, never seen again, but still they manage to escape. And then, uh, famous episode, he wants to get his son back. Uh, and in order to do this, he captures in a very daring raid in Georgia, two Christian princesses. And this is a great shame to the court in St. Petersburg. And he says, I'll return your princesses if you return my son. And this turns out to be successful. And the princesses are returned, and his son, Jumal comes back uh, in a very famous and touching scene. Uh, But what is particularly interesting is that uh, with the princesses, Uh, there is uh, a French um, tutor, a governess, Anna Trancy. She's just a kind of teacher from Paris who's got a job teaching the royal princesses in Georgia. And she is captured with them and uh, shares their captivity up in uh, the the mountain village, Aoul, the, uh, the mountain fastness. And when she is returned, along with the princesses as part of the hostage exchange. She writes a book when she goes back to France, which explains how honorably she has been treated, even though these people are so shockingly poor, her honor, as she put it, and the honor of the princesses remained intact. Uh, the Imam was stern, but treated them with respect. And part of the, the mythos, the legend of Imam Shamil, is the honorable way in which he always treated prisoners, and respected the sanctity of non-combatants. Despite the fact that the Russians had massacred the entire population of nearby Circassia, he did not retaliate in kind uh, and uh, treated prisoners um, honorably. Uh, finally captured, um, 1859, in the last remaining owl or mountain settlement, a place called Gunib, which is still almost a kind of place of pilgrimage in the Caucasus for the, the Naqshbandis. He only has 300 faithful murids left, and the Russians have a vast army. Uh, and the Russians say, unless you lay down your arms, we're going to hunt down every member of your family and kill them. And Shyamal realises that the game is up, and so famously he gives himself up and goes off to St. Petersburg in captivity. And the CMC group last year visiting the Hermitage Museum in St. Petersburg uh, were shown his dagger and his banner, which they still have in the museum there. Uh, Quite an evocative thing, seeing those things from a time that was not that long ago. Uh, So that was the end (coughs) of the independent Natchbandi state, and what we glean from this is Imam Shamil is appointed by his teacher, Razi Mullah. It's clear that he doesn't want to do any of this. It's evident that his real concern is dhikr and with uh, uh, implementation of the divine law. But given this force majeure of the possibility of Serbian-style ethnic cleansing in uh, the Caucasus, He has no choice but to take on the mantle of being a leader. But at every point, he maintains his independence and his austere and ascetical lifestyle. His food is the food of everyone else. He lives in a very simple stone hut throughout the quite excruciating Caucasian winters. At altitude, he shares their suffering. He is at the front line of combat and in this we detect something of the prophetic Mohammedan spirit, true leadership which does not lead from behind but from the front and which does things not because one desires some kind of glory in the style of Napoleon and so many others, la gloire, but rather because one is obliged by God's law and by the urgent entreaties of one's people to uh, take up this, this mantle. But at all times, despite being angry at what the Russians had done, and it was a righteous anger, at no point does his anger lead him into needless massacre and mayhem. He treats hostages and prisoners honorably. He, despite the fact that the Russians cheat him at every opportunity, always upholds his undertakings. And uh, thus is his memory in Medina with his family and in the Caucasus, Russia, and much of the Ummah still revered as somebody who (coughs) was mosaic and not pharaonic, somebody who did not wish for leadership but had it thrust upon him. And as a result, as is promised in the Hadith of the Holy Prophet, was given help in his leadership. Nobody today particularly reveres those generals and those tsars, but um, who doesn't revere the memory of Imam Shamil? And even this romantic fiction writer, Leslie Blanche, really admires the man, though she had nothing to do with Islam. This is how da'wah exists. This is how leadership should be. But it doesn't have much to do with the kind of self-seeking, self-promoting, flip-chart culture of the leadership programs in today's Ummah. it's to do with spiritual charisma and self-denial mm. to the extent that you deny the ego you can exercise just authority and god will help you to the extent that your ego is in it and your rise to fame and fortune is an ego trip you're going to be a disaster to the world and we see this today in washington moscow so many places egos result in the destruction of the Ra'iyya and the humiliation of Beni Adam. So that's the end of this rather brief introduction and outline uh, to the life of Imam Shamil, but worth reading more about because it's a very dramatic, heroic, buccaneering kind of story uh, in an age when things were looking bleak as they are today, but still the Ummah continues and Islam is still there and thriving in the Caucasus Muslim population in Russia continues to grow. They don't drink so much. They don't have as many abortions. They have big families. The Ummah, alhamdulillah, continues to grow there. So, who would have thought in Imam Shamil's time that there would be 160,000 people praying the Eid prayer at the Olympic Stadium mosque in Moscow? You can see it from, from the space station, apparently. It's extraordinary, a huge jamal. So. Wallahu khayrul Makirin, God is the best of plotters. Uh, that, that's the end of our first session. Cambridge Muslim College, training the next generation of Muslim thinkers.